One in 12 people in the UK have asthma. This very common long-term condition is incredibly treatable, and the majority of those affected should lead normal healthy lives. That said, exacerbations of asthma, more commonly termed asthma attacks, are common, with a varying spectrum of severity from the easily resolved to the life-threatening. Managing this group of patients well should be bread and butter for most ambulance staff, but we thought it would be useful to revisit the subject, to brush up on what's going on during an asthma attack, how those commonly used medications work, as well as those that we use less commonly. So, how much magnesium should we give to an asthma attack? What's the evidence behind IM adrenaline and asthma? And what should our ventilatory strategy be in cardiac arrest? I've got the answers to all of your questions, as long as you don't asthma something I don't know. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh. I'm Simon. And I'm Alex. And this month we're taking a look at asthma, which is a pretty topical subject for this time of year. It is definitely the season for asthma exacerbations uh, to be presented to us either on our ambulances or in our A&E departments. So let's get started. So... According to the British Lung Foundation, uh, approximately 8 million people, that's about 12% of the British population, uh, have been diagnosed with asthma. So this means that more people have received an asthma diagnosis than have been diagnosed with all other lung diseases combined. So it's, it's definitely you know, considered a, uh, a common respiratory comorbidity. In actual fact, the figure is probably a little bit less than 12% of the population because uh, a lot of children that end up with a diagnosis of asthma will then go on to grow out of it. And it's one of those conditions that can be considerably overdiagnosed. So lots of people will end up with an asthma diagnosis in, in childhood uh, when actually what they get is uh, regular viral induced wheezes throughout the year and then just get lost to sort of follow up later on in adulthood. So so that that number is, is potentially a little bit less uh, than 12% of the population, but, but definitely something that people are going to be seeing a lot of. Broadly, it'll affect the sexes quite comparably. So uh, women will end up being diagnosed slightly more each year, but it, it's pretty even, to be fair, uh, between men and women. And about 1,200 people a year are recorded as dying from asthma. Now, in a modern health system, that is absolutely way too high. We should be striving for this figure to be, uh, you know, we should be striving for this figure to be zero. And and uh, and as a result of that, in 2015, an inquiry was launched into asthma deaths, uh, titling a report, Why Asthma Still Kills, making a number of recommendations to the health service that can be changed broadly to uh, help lower that number away from a, you know, what should be a preventable 1,200 people a year dying. Uh, and we'll we'll come back to that a little bit later in the podcast when we're talking about the recommendations that are particularly applicable to our avenue of healthcare because there's a number of uh, recommendations in that report that we should be bearing in mind as uh, as paramedics. So that's the epidemiology, but let's take a look at the pathophysiology. Let's revisit what asthma means, what's going on in our asthma patients and... Uh, what constitutes an exacerbation. So Alex, do you want to talk about the pathophysiology? 
Asthma as a word has its root in the Greek word asine, which means heavy breathing. And that's an appropriate term because asthma causes chronic inflammation of the respiratory epithelium and exacerbations, also known as asthma attacks, which cause significant or sometimes even life-threatening breathing problems. Now, talking about Anatomy and pathophysiology is always difficult over a podcast format, but I think it's worth having a quick rundown of the anatomy of the airway, uh, just as a, as a brief reminder. So the anatomy of the airway really begins with the oronasopharynx and the larynx, which, as you move down the airway, become the trachea. The distal end of the trachea bifurcates into the left and right main stem bronchi, a point called the carina, which is usually around the level of the fourth or fifth thoracic vertebrae. These main stem bronchi further divide into the different lobar bronchi, the superior and the inferior lobes in the left lung, and the superior, middle and inferior lobes in the right lung. Within each of those lobes, the lobar bronchus branches into a network of bronchioles, narrow, smooth airways without the cartilaginous rings found in the higher airways. And that's really important to bear in mind in the context of asthma because it means that bronchioles are kept open by the action of smooth muscle alone. There's no cartilaginous rings helping to keep those open. And those bronchioles terminate in a diffuse network of millions of alveolar sacs. And we've talked about the, um, the alveolar sacs in previous episodes and how the surface area uh, inside those is maximized. And that those alveolar sacs are where gaseous exchange is facilitated by that large surface area, the thin walls and, and the rich blood supply. Now, one thing that we haven't talked about in previous podcasts is that much like blood vessels, the tissue of the airway is composed of layers. And we have talked previously about the different layers inside a blood vessel. Well, in the airways, there is a hollow cavity, which the air passes through, and that is called the lumen. And there's two broader groups of tissue that surround that lumen. The first is the mucosa, and that is comprised of uh, epithelial cells, ciliated and non-ciliated columnar epithelial cells, which are interspersed with mucus-producing goblet cells. And just underneath that is the lamina propria, which is a, a layer which sort of holds all of those epithelial cells together. And then around the mucosa layer is a layer called the submucosa, and that is essentially a dense network of different connective tissues and smooth muscle. And that smooth muscle is, is really important in the pathophysiology of asthma. Asthma itself is a complex biomolecular disease process which has different phenotypes. It's not just one single disease. It used to be thought that asthma was a single disease process, but as time has gone on, different diagnostic processes have, have found that there are different types of asthma. In the most common allergic um, childhood asthma known as atopic asthma, it's thought to be mediated by an excessive abundance of Th2 helper cells, which stimulate and recruit subsets of immune cells in response to an environmental trigger. And we're going to talk more about what those triggers are uh, slightly later. Th2 cells are also known to be involved in atopic dermatitis and allergic rhinitis. So these three conditions often coexist as a triad. So what happens when a patient is exposed to an environmental allergen or an environmental trigger is that this is detected by a dendritic cell. That dendritic cell then activates these Th2, the helper cells, which recruit inflammatory cytokines. 
cytokines are signaling proteins uh, and they've got all sorts of really interesting names like interleukin-4, interleukin-5 and interleukin-13, which are relevant in asthma. And they have a range of effects on immune cells like eosinophils and mast cells. Now, those mast cells release histamine, they release further inflammatory cytokines, and they release IgE antibodies. Now, the release of IgE antibodies means that this is a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. So asthma is a hypersensitivity reaction. The principal effects of a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction are smooth muscle contraction and vasodilation. So as we've just been talking about, the particularly the bronchioles are very susceptible to uh, things which involve the smooth muscle because that's all they've got keeping them open. That cellular cascade creates a combination of smooth muscle mediated airway narrowing and increased mucus production from those goblet cells that I talked about before. And that results ultimately in airway narrowing uh, during that acute reaction phase. And that really results in air trapping. You have to remember that asthma is not a problem generally with getting air in. The air can get in, the problem is getting it back out again. And that's because the airways narrow um, and they get blocked up with mucus. All of those changes lead to increasing difficulty in breathing, which can range from a mild wheeze right up to the point of fatal asthma. Another important aspect in the pathophysiology of asthma is that following the acute reaction phase, there is what they call a late phase, which can last for some time, sometimes up to two to three days. And during this phase, vasodilation results in increased vascular permeability and leads to secondary infiltration of those immune cells, particularly eosinophils, which um, co-migrate with the inflammatory cells and and often undergo degranulation, which means they essentially pop and release cytotoxic products into the tissue of the lung. And that can that can really contribute to airway epithelial damage and to hyper-responsiveness of the lungs. And this eosinophil-mediated damage has, has been found to be a really important factor in the persistence of asthma and other mechanisms which recruit eosinophils, such as activation of innate lymphoid cells, have been shown to cause asthma in other phenotypes. So the most common type of asthma that will most people will be familiar with is, as I said before, it's allergy-mediated and it usually starts in childhood. But there are other types, such as adult-onset eosinophilic asthma, and there are other difficult to control and sometimes life-threatening asthma phenotypes, which have been shown to be associated with this type of persistent cellular damage. So most people listening are probably already familiar with the idea that asthma is smooth muscle contraction and increased mucus production, which makes it hard to breathe. Um, you treat it and then those muscles will relax and everything goes back to normal. Well, it's as as we've just as I've just been through, it's it's sometimes a little bit more complicated than that. And actually asthma as a disease process does cause damage to the lungs. And that's sometimes why we find these patients who have really difficult to control asthma. They'll they'll be on all the right treatments and they're still getting almost daily or sometimes multiple times a day, they're still getting exacerbations of asthma, particularly at this time of year. 
So that's a very brief run through of the pathophysiology of asthma. Uh, hopefully we'll have some nice diagrams on our website, which you can have a look at, which might uh, help to explain anything that, that I rushed through there. But the process of asthma ultimately begins with exposure to an environmental factor or an allergen. And that is the thing which causes the asthma attack or the exacerbation. So why don't we have a look now at causes of exacerbation? I was trying to find some information or, or some paper looking at common triggers or, or what the, the the top things that cause an asthma exacerbation are because they're reasonably well publicised for COPD. We know that infective causes are the top cause of COPD exacerbations, I think, to the tune of 70% or something like that. But, but I couldn't find something quite as set in stone as that for asthma. And I, and I think this is probably because it's a little bit more personal. People will know what their triggers are and, and they might be the, the same triggers every time or, or, or certain groups of, of triggers so um, you know c common common triggers do include viral infections but it can also include allergens pollutants things like grass or tree pollen animal fur is a big one but it can even be things like changes in the weather or dust where they've just been cleaning in their houses and, and that, that might kick it off and, and I think People that have asthma will probably know the things that are, are the, the particularly bad triggers for them. One of the things I did find while I was looking at this was uh, some risk factors for frequent exacerbations. And one of the top risk factors is, is going to be a, being a smoker or an ex-smoker for uh, exacerbating asthma. And, and one of the other things that was an identified risk factor for, uh, for, for worsening exacerbations that we'll probably talk uh, more about when we, when we come onto the risk stratification section of the podcast, but is, uh, is mental health problems and social isolation when it comes to uh, non-compliance with treatment plans. So a couple of things to think about there for uh, people that have regular exacerbations. So. Why don't we talk now about the assessment of these patients? So Simon, do you want to talk us through some of the questions particularly that we need to ask during history taking and some of the physical assessment elements that we'll want to take into account? Yeah, so as you said, we're going to start with the history. So we're going to think about the symptoms that are cardinal for asthma. So that is a cough, which is normally dry, um, non-productive, although with people with poorly controlled asthma, that could be um, a productive cough with some like thick white sputum. Obviously, if infection is the cause of the exacerbation, then uh, it might be uh, purulent. So that's our green brown sputum, maybe some blood flecked streaks as well. Next would obviously be uh, shortness of breath. Wheeze is kind of um, a really important symptom. That being said, obviously what we don't want to do is miss those life-threatening asthmatics that actually have a silent chest. Be dubious just because someone doesn't have wheeze doesn't mean they're not having an exasthma exacerbation. And then chest. I had a I had a student ask me once, uh, how will you know when you're hearing a silent chest? Which I think is a, f a fair question. Uh, on the face of it, it doesn't sound, you know, it sounds obvious, doesn't it? But uh, I think the anxiety was uh, was a fair point because it's quite rare. And I think having only heard it once, it's one of those things that you definitely will recognise. So I. I wouldn't worry about it. The, there's a whole load of other cues that are indicating to you that these patients are mega, mega poorly. A lot of the time, if they're at the silent chest stage, they're looking proper fatigued and frightened as well. So um, a silent chest is something that is is talked about quite a bit, but I know the 
the I think I've heard them twice, and uh, each time I didn't really need a stethoscope to 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 inform me what I was going to hear in that person's chest. Yeah, the patients look really sick. You've got to just ask yourself the question: Does it sound like this person's moving air, and does it look like they're moving air? Because um, they they do not look like they're shifting air in and out of their chest, and and that's the question that you're trying to answer. Finally, uh, we need to consider chest tightness. And I think this is a a challenging one. We need to differentiate that from chest pain. Uh, You shouldn't get chest pain and asthma. So we need to start to think about some of our differentials that might cause a patient to be short of breath. So, for example, um, acute coronary syndrome. And that can be challenging because patients can complain of chest tightness with an ACS and band-like pressure across their chest. So it's um it's a real challenge we really need to kind of elucidate those symptoms and really try and get the patient to explain what they're meaning by chest tightness we need to think about other types of chest pain so like pleuritic chest pain that might be associated with uh, pulmonary embolism or a chest infection we need to as i said think about the different types of cough whether it's purulent whether there's infective markers whether we have fever need to think about differentials that link closely to asthma, such as COPD, like in our older patients who are smokers. There is asthma and COPD overlap syndrome, so some people have combinations of both. We need to think about our metabolic causes of shortness of breath, so our uh, DKAs, where our patients are breathing rapidly due to that acidosis. So it's just really important to look for other causes as well, things that are pertinent to help us you know, rule in that this is more likely an exacerbation of aspirin and rule out other conditions. We need to think about the patient's past medical history. And this kind of might give you a lot of the diagnosis. If they're diagnosed asthma, um, it can make our job a lot easier. That being said, you know, we need to be careful not to just jump on top of the fact, oh, this is an asthma exacerbation, when, as we said, it might not be. We need to inquire about other atopic conditions such as eczema, hay fever, rhinitis. These are often combined and many people, myself for example, have combinations of these. You know, I I have eczema, I have hay fever and, and a lot of asthmatics do have more than one. As Josh said earlier, childhood wheezing. Some children grow out of that, some don't. When I'm managing children, we don't really diagnose that much asthma anymore. It it depends if the wheeze is multi-trigger. So we said triggered by dust or allergens or um, exercise. That's more likely in keeping with asthma than it is if the wheeze is just induced by viral illness episodes. So it's good to inquire about that. We need to inquire about their medication history, so particularly inhalers. So patients might know them as their blue or reliever inhaler, which is obviously a salbutamol or, or ventolin inhaler, which they should always have for exacerbations and to manage acute symptoms. We need to check that they're compliant with their long-term inhalers, which they often know as preventers, inhaled corticosteroids such as uh, beclomethazone propionate. Some will have different types, so they might have a long-acting beta agonist, or they might have a long-acting beta agonist that's combined with an inhaled corticosteroid such as Cerevent. So it's important just to you know find out what the the patient takes regularly and, and are they compliant with those medications. You know when was the last time they saw their asthma nurse? And finally, as Josh has already spoken about, 
we need to inquire about smoking history. So in long-term smokers, we might be thinking, you know, actually, is there now some COPD overlap? When was the last time this person actually saw a respiratory specialist? Did they have spirometry? Could this be actually COPD as opposed to asthma? Moving on to our examination, so we need to do some form of respiratory and cardiovascular exam, be that an A to E assessment if the patient looks really sick when you walk in the room, or we can take a little bit longer and do a systems exam. But the things we're going to need to be thinking about are the respiratory rate, the heart rate, the blood pressure, your oxygen saturations, because they're really important. And I think it's really important that we mention that an oxygen saturation monitor needs to be applied to the correct location for the right age group of patient. You cannot intermix these devices because it can give you false readings. There's a NHS safety notice about this. So make sure you're using the right device for the right patient. So what you're talking about there, Simon, is using a, a, a paediatric finger probe on an adult's ear or something yeah, of that nature. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And it, it doesn't give accurate readings and can give like falsely high, falsely low readings. So yeah, it's really important that we use the right equipment. And if you know if your service doesn't have it, then maybe inquire about whether they could get hold of that equipment. After we've got you know those baseline observations, our examination, we need to um, inspect the chest. Uh, we need to look as the patient cyanosed. We need to see um, their work of breathing. So are they pursing their lips? Have they got a prolonged expiratory phase when they're breathing out, which is indicative of asthma? You know, if someone is rapidly breathing and hyperventilating, it's unlikely they're having a, a an asthma attack because they are able to get air in and out equal phases, whereas we know that asthma often equates to having difficulty getting air out of the chest. We need to think about um, the position of the patient. So are they tripoding? Do they get distressed when we you know, try and lay them back on a trolley or sit them on a trolley and they want to kind of be set upright and leaning forward? All of these things can add to our clinical picture of the level of severity of this asthma exacerbation. We need to look for chest recession or accessory muscle use, which you know may be helping our person compensate with their breathing. Is there an audible wheeze that we can hear? Or are there other noises that we wouldn't associate with asthma, such as a inspiratory stridor that might make us think of other differentials? It's worth looking at um, the expansion of the chest to see whether it's equal. We could also, if we've got a quiet environment, percuss the chest if we're looking for you know, things like pneumothorax. However, it's kind of difficult sometimes to percuss a chest in, in, in loud environments, which we're often working in. And finally, we're going to auscultate the chest so we can listen for that wheeze or obviously the progression towards the silent chest that we kind of talked about earlier that, that can be this difficult thing. It's worth mentioning as well that be wary of sometimes the patient who becomes calmer, more relaxed and is less noisy. That doesn't always mean that you've improved the situation. Sometimes that means that they could be tiring and they could be their ventilation could be failing. And it's it's a relatively common way of, of asthma getting worse is the fact that actually sometimes people look better, but actually their condition is getting uh, a lot more a lot more towards the life threatening end of the, of of asthma. And actually, Simon, on the the inverse of that as well, that's just reminded me of something I was going to mention earlier. Sometimes I've I've had in the past where you're you're treating uh, a patient with asthma and you'll have a listen to their chest and they've got a bit of an audible wheeze and then you 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 give them a nebulizer and start the treatment and then someone listens and goes oh my goodness that wheeze has gotten even worse have have they gone downhill but obviously what you what you're hearing there is as the medicine takes effect 
the air movement is increasing so you get more of a wheeze so it's just the just the inverse to what you were saying there sometimes they making less noise they're actually getting more poorly and sometimes when they are when their chest is making more noise that's actually a sign that uh, what you're doing is working yeah that is, that's a fantastic point like we said earlier it is a spectrum of mild to moderate severe life-threatening and near fatal um is how we we gauge asthma so we could move our patient with treatment along that line yeah i think these are all really important points to make we need to look at the whether the patient can complete sentences and this is really important i do not want to discharge an asthmatic that can't finish a sentence that is a real good sign that they are really really poorly having a severe asthma exacerbation so can your patient complete a sentence without having to take a breath we want to be wary as we just said about exhaustion and and tiredness and obviously if hypoxia is settling in that might affect our conscious level so we need to, to keep all of these things in mind we probably want to put them on a some cardiac monitoring to look for arrhythmias because obviously again hypoxia can cause arrhythmias and then finally, the thing we need to think about um, in a little bit more depth is the peak expiratory flow measurement. A question I wanted to ask you two. Um, yes, I always st- do it. I absolutely <laughs> always do it. <laughs> Except so, for patients with COVID, in which case we don't do it. <laughs> yeah, okay. So yeah, so obviously some of this is, is gone out the window with 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 things like that. But um, before COVID and, and now we're going hopefully back to some more back in the practice. old days <laughs> back in the, back old in the days. good old days do do did you routinely do peak flows on patients you saw with, with asthma and and did did you do it on some of them and not others yes i did them routinely for asthma although i will admit that most of the time by the point an ambulance has gotten involved and and you walk through the door they're not really well enough to perform a peak expiratory flow on initial presentation so yes, I did do them, but usually as a, an indicator of how well treatment has worked, um, which isn't obviously, you know, ideally you want a, a, a you know, a, a starting point. But um, yeah, in my experience, by the time we've gotten involved, uh, they're usually too sick for that. And I, I, I was, I was kind of wondering if we'd see a spectrum here. So, um, I, Josh, t- tell us, tell us your thoughts, and I'll see if my my spectrum <laughs> theory is correct. <laughs> uh what that would require josh and i seeing patients yeah yeah what, what do you mean the spectrum the the people that tell the truth and the people that outright lie no no uh, no no. The, the patients, <laughs> no the patients you so, see in your clinical practice yeah it, it, it's tricky isn't it i i don't always do a peak exploratory flow because i think sometimes you can look at a patient and they are so dyspneic they are so struggling for breath that you know they're not really going to be in a in the right state to do it properly and they're not going to listen to your instructions and they're not going to give it a that you know that like the instruction says the maximal uh, effective exhalation as quick as possible because they're struggling for breathing and no one would want to do that so you come on to the question of why would you do a test if you know the outcome isn't going to be deeply useful for you uh, and it's also like this with with a, a number of the assessments that you've just described simon you've described a very uh, comprehensive and proficient assessment there and absolutely i would be wanting to do one of those uh, in its entirety if i was going to discharge a patient but it may not be appropriate to try and do a full respiratory chest exam on your patient without delivering some 
treatments without getting them started on a nebulizer and oxygen and, and sometimes you have to do some concurrent activity so the lines between assessment and management can sometimes be blurred particularly in these more sick patients so uh so no i don't always do one as my first part but i do try and get a peak expiratory flow if it's appropriate if the patient is not so sick or we can make them better enough to a point where they can now have a good go at a peak expiratory flow so we've got something to compare to uh, at the resolution of their treatment that, that's probably what resembles my practice um, a little bit more a little bit Which more is- now that yeah. was a very long-winded way of saying <laughs> I agree with Alex. Yeah, and, and and you know, and this is this is this is what I wanted you, you both to say because I think a lot of people feel they have to do a peak flow because it's it's asthma and it's like a quality indicator, and it's absolutely not the case at all. You you've completely hit the nail on the head there. That actually we need to tailor our history and examination. If someone is so short of breath that they can't talk to me. I'm not going to do a medical model history take that we've just talked through, you know, history presenting a complaint, you know, tell me about your symptoms, tell me about your past medical history. I'm not going to do that until I've started some, at least some treatment and I've stabilized them a little bit. And I think that is where experience it is a key skill to being a paramedic is walking into a room and going, I can sit on this for 10 minutes and have a chat. Oh, I need to do something immediately now. And then monitoring and reassessing the situation. I did put a lot of peak flows in some of areas of my practice working as a ECP because I was seeing that lower end of asthma exacerbations, which I was either referred to as crew by crews to discharge patients or I was seeing them in treatment centers. So actually, when I discharge patients, I do want a peak flow. And I think that's good practice because we can compare that either to the patient's known baseline or to obviously the appropriate peak flow charts that are available is to see whether we are at a decent level which is going to be around hopefully higher than 75 percent of best predicted or known known peak flow but please don't do peak flows on your severe and life-threatening asthmatics that you're you're, you know that you're going to be taken to hospital that are really really sick because it's just they're not gonna be able to do it as josh said and it's not going to give you any useful information in fact it'll just make them worse so I think I think that's that's in, in my mind relatively common sense, but I, I think that some people do worry that they haven't done it. And and I think there's also there's another end of that spectrum where people don't do peak expiratory flows and and say, oh well, the patient wouldn't be able to do it properly anyway, um, and they just apply that to most of these patients that they go to see. And I think that is also wrong. The the, the nuance. Uh, lies slightly in the middle of that um, because peak expiratory flow is quite useful for giving you some objective figures for one how well your treatment has worked but two where which segment of asthma your, your patient falls into because some of those features could be a little bit open to interpretation like that that inability to complete sentences in one breath Simon that's really really good and that's a really important point to make and something to bear in mind but if a patient's speaking to you like this and they can just about manage a sentence but they're still having to take non-natural big breaths in between what they're saying does that count as inability to complete sentences in one breath is, is what that's trying to get to is, is, is the purpose of that sentence that the patient should be speaking to you normally or near to their normal there's a reasonable amount of ambiguity 
in, in, in some of those sections and the peak expiratory flow can, can help guide your picture of severity uh, quite well. So uh, yeah, definitely the nuance is somewhere in between those two points. It's the art of medicine, isn't it? It's understanding the clinical application, looking at your patient and deciding, you know, is that what I'm seeing? You know, heart rate is a fantastic example. It, it says that, oh, if you have a heart rate over 110, you're having a severe asthma attack according to the BTS guidelines. But if I've just smashed you full of 10 milligrams of salbutamol nebulizer and I measure your heart rate immediately after that, is it going to be elevated? Yes. And if you feel considerably better, your peak flow is normal your sats are normal you're speaking to me fine i've actually resolved your wheeze and you now have a clear chest and you're feeling considerably better and your patient looks well does it matter that their heart rate's now 111 so simon i think we've suitably danced around the instances that we would or wouldn't be using this test do you want do you want to actually tell us what peak expiratory flow is and how we do one (laughs) that might help mightn't it so a peak expiratory flow um also known as a peak flow is uh, the a person's maximum speed of expiration. Unlike spirometry, where we're going to do a long protracted breath, this is a maximal short, sharp, and quick breath into a measurement device that gives us our uh, maximum speed of expiration. And the way this test effectively works is, if you are having uh, an asthma exacerbation, as we mentioned earlier, you're going to get a prolonged expiratory phase because it's difficult for you to get air out. Therefore, the maximum air that you can force out rapidly from your breath is going to take longer to come out and it's going to be less power. And therefore, we know that there is a greater degree of airway obstruction. So what we want to look at is the graph that I mentioned earlier And we want to compare this to either the patient's baseline. So a lot of asthmatics, so like I I know what my peak flow is when I'm managing my asthma well and I'm not having an exacerbation. And a lot of asthmatics will know this. So if they know it, use their norm. If they don't know it, there are charts you can find, uh, you know, with these devices that will guide you based upon a patient's um, age and, is it age and height? It's age and height, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And sex. Um, yeah, that will guide you into an average measurement that, that a person similar to them should be able to exhale. So, and then we consider these as a percentage. So, kind of 50 to 75% would be moderate asthma, 33 to 50% would be severe, and then anything below 33% would be classed as life threatening. Obviously, as we said, we're probably not going to be doing them on life-threatening patients. So these are more for your patients that you probably want to discharge or the severe asthmatics that you've improved and might be eligible for discharge. So that's effectively what we're testing. It gives us another objectable measure to help us base our decision-making. And it kind of leads us nicely into the BTS guidelines of what equates to moderate severe life-threatening and near-fatal asthma attacks which is something that everyone should know um, and it's really important now again as we said earlier there are varying interpretations of this but these are just guidelines that you know can help us form a decision so most people will be familiar with these because they're reflected very well in the asthma section of jr calc but but essentially bts categorizes four categories of 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 asthma moderate acute asthma, acute severe asthma, life-threatening and near-fatal. And peak expiratory flow fits into each of those segments for how we can distinguish them. There's also other elements, so moderate asthma, 
would be no less than 50% of their best or predicted peak expiratory flow with no features of acute severe. Acute severe asthma, we'd be looking at a patient who is less than 50% of their best or predicted with deranged physiology and that inability to complete sentences in in one breath, as we described. Uh, And then there's a number of features of of life-threatening asthma, but any one of the features that is specified there, such as exhaustion or altered conscious level, things that should be red flags to a SATs under 92%, these are are features that uh, would, would particularly concern us for for a life-threatening asthma attack we'll put the link to those on the website but most people will be familiar with them it's probably the brackets that you've referenced in your jr calc when you're out on placement or or out on shift um should we talk about risk stratifying these patients so we we've we've talked about the history take we've talked about the assessment that we're going to do for these patients and we've talked about how we might have to do that a little bit disjointed or segmented with some concurrent activity if they're particularly uh, struggling for breath whilst we're uh, whilst we're assessing them. But now let's talk about how we would risk stratify these patients for for discharge. Which patients are we going to think? Okay, maybe we can discharge you, and and what would be some features that would concern us enough to maybe take somebody to hospital? So we just covered the first set of those, which you said, Josh, we need to categorize our asthma. So mild to moderate asthma exacerbations are going to be our target for potential discharge. We might be discharging severe asthmas, but only once we've given them treatment and we've seen a marked improvement and we've dropped them a category back down to kind of mild to moderate. So we know from our history and clinical examination which patients fit into that category. So now we need to think about things that might sway our decision in in other ways. These again are taken directly from the British Thoracic Society guidelines for the management of asthma exacerbations. So the first one is we need to think about history of severe life-threatening and near-fatal episodes. So I particularly ask questions around have you ever been intubated because asthmatics that have been intubated and sent to intensive care usually know this they know that they've been intubated in 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 the past and they've had an intensive care stay so i normally ask that direct question have you ever been to intensive care have you ever been intubated and then if they say no i go okay have you ever been admitted into hospital overnight for your asthma so i usually go further than just coming to a and e because a lot of people will say yes and I, i don't class coming to A&E as being admitted to hospital because I will still discharge a lot of asthmatics from the emergency department. So have you been admitted overnight or kept in for your asthma? And the reason that this is important because studies of asthma deaths tell us that most fatal asthma occurs in those with chronically severe asthma. So by the very nature of their levels of need, they are at high risk for deterioration and high risk of developing fatal asthmatic episodes. My personal practice is anyone that has had previous intensive care admissions, I am a lot more, even if they look quite well, I'm a lot more cautious before I discharge them. They get a considerable longer period of monitoring. And that normally, to be honest, is is 24 hours. So, you know, if they're going to present afternoon to evening, that that might even be overnight, um, just to make sure that person's safe. At the very minimum, they need a strong, robust safety net and a quick way of getting back to hospital. So, a, a you know, another family member that is aware of everything, of how to monitor their asthma um, and can drive them back to hospital or be able to call an ambulance. The next thing we need to think about is those that are not receiving adequate treatment or are not compliant with their treatment. 
this is the um, kind of inhaled corticosteroids or the preventer inhalers. We know that patients that are not compliant or have poor control of their asthma often use more of their short-acting bronchodilators, so that's actually like kind of salbutamol. And we've seen that heavy or increasing use of salbutamol is a direct risk factor for an increased chance of dying from an asthma exacerbation. Yeah, and that goes back to some of the pathophys that I was talking about earlier in the episode. If we think about that eosinophil-mediated damage, this isn't just a condition in which the smooth muscle of the uh, of the airways is tightened up and then loosened with medicine you know there's other processes going on so this is a a disease process which over time if these patients aren't properly taking their medicines can and will damage their lungs it is an eminently preventable process this is one of those moments that could be teachable if you're talking to a patient about their cort- inhaled corticosteroids or their other medicines you know it's it, it's worth um just having that discussion with them that deterioration of this condition is is not something that we should be accepting as normal yeah absolutely most people's asthma should not affect them on a day-to-day basis if it's well controlled so absolutely the majority of asthma patients we should expect to have pretty much a symptom-free life there's there's a, a subset of asthma patients. So uh, asthma.org reckons that about 17% of asthma patients will be that categorized difficult asthma. This used to be termed brittle asthma, which is a phrase that I think has fallen out of, of popular favor. So it's now termed either difficult asthma or, or if, if they're worse than that, severe asthma. And and this these, these will be the terms that these patients will use to use. So th- these will be asthma patients that tend to get symptoms three or more times a week, tend, tend to be using their re- reliever inhaler several times a week. They might get nocturnal exacerbations of their asthma quite regularly, and they will be managed under a specialist asthma clinic. So there are some patients that uh, unfortunately aren't symptom-free, as I said, about, about uh, 17%. You know, I, I, I wasn't suggesting that people who have uh, more difficult to control asthma, that's simply because they're not using their medicines properly. What, what, the, what the studies in the new pathology and histopathology has shown is that there are different phenotypes of asthma. People with childhood allergic asthma who correctly use their medicines can avoid much of the damage but some of, some of those types of asthma, um, eosinophilic asthma for example, you know, there, there's new novel treatments which help. Um, but yeah, there, there are some patients who just have very bad, difficult asthma. And while the BTS guidelines doesn't specifically list that as a reason not to, or, or actually as, as a reason to admit a patient to hospital, I kind of agree with what you were saying earlier, Josh, that pre-hospitally I would be exceptionally... I'd have an exceptionally low threshold to admit those patients to hospital. I guess the final uh, risk category or risk profile to discuss would be um, behavioural or adverse psychosocial factors, which are recorded in a number of, of asthma deaths. So as I was saying at the start, 
patients with concurrent uh, mental health problems. So asthma patients are at a greater risk of developing mental health problems, particularly anxiety and depression, and they can be at a higher risk of being uh, socially isolated. And it's a bit of a vicious circle that if they're, if they're struggling with their mental health, that can, that can also affect their adherence to treatment regimes and, and, and put them at a greater risk of, of uh, asthma exacerbations. So that's definitely something to, to factor in. And we might have to ask about some of those psychosocial elements and see how they're doing in in uh, in the rest of their life and, and take a really good social history which which will have an impact on their uh, on their asthma history and, and perhaps how we risk stratify them for for discharge and then another thing that i wanted to ask you about simon because this is in a load of the guidelines if most people have read their asthma guidelines they'll have, have seen something about about nocturnal presentations so patients that present to you at night are a risk factor can you just tell us why that's the case and and why having an asthma attack at night is concerning quite simply but it's because asthma symptoms are worse at night they often develop and they become worse overnight the the reasons aren't you know they 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 have studied them um i'll put a link to a good paper in in the show notes but um Basically, there's increased activation of your inflammatory systems overnight because obviously we are repairing and, and that's what we do overnight. Our inflammatory systems are higher so we can we can fix ourselves. But obviously, along with that comes worsening airway inflammation and bronchial responsiveness. There's other things as well, such as is the bedroom too hot or too cold? You know, that, that can trigger asthma symptoms. Dust, our sleeping position, the fact that we're lying back. If we have an infected presentation or we've got a post-nasal drip, are there things that are dripping down into our throats and, and triggering, you know, more cough responses, more um, inflammatory processes? So there's all these things that, you know, they kind of think make this worse. But yeah, it's definitely something I've always been taught that be careful about discharging asthma in the late evening or the kind of, of night. And often, if I get a patient that's really late in A&E that presents and has a uh, an improvement but they're still a bit wheezy and they're still kind of having this asthma exacerbation in the in the day or in the morning i would kind of give them steroids and send them home um, with worse than advice sometimes i do just keep them overnight and then you know ask the medics to discharge them the next morning i don't think they all have to come in but i just think it's another thing to take into account and again it's another nuance that you can think about on an individual patient basis i think it would be worthwhile saying yeah they, they don't necessarily all need hospital or emergency department admission but certainly if a patient is presenting at night it's worth having a look at those social circumstances that they're in and perhaps getting other advice from a from a community provider or an out-of-hours provider yeah I, I certainly would would not take a you know a, an asthma presentation at night uh, I would not be happy to resolve the symptoms and, and leave them with no further no further care or input that I, I think that would be um you know that that that's way outside uh, of, of what I'd be prepared to accept as an acceptable risk. I know your the trust you work for, Alex, has TTO prednisolone as a PGD, and I know that started to appear in JR Calc, and I don't. I, I know they're pushing for it to be a meds exemption, but I don't quite know how that's going to fit in with standard paramedic practice yet. But it does raise a really good point that actually any asthmatic that is having an exacerbation, no matter how severe it is must have steroids you're you're absolutely right um I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about medicines later but no you're absolutely right and i think in terms of how it adds into 
in sort of paramedic or, or pre-hospitalist care. I, I think it's really, I think it's a really important step. I think it's really important and a really good thing. But I still think that some follow-up, you know, if if you have a patient who presents at night and you're able to resolve their symptoms and you can give them uh, a short course of uh, corticosteroids, then that's absolutely fantastic. But I still think that patient needs follow-up within a set period of time. You know, it's not just a case of here you are, Mrs. Miggins, if your asthma is resolved, have your tablets and call us again next time you get wheezy. We need to make sure that we are still informing primary care you know whether whether that's the 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 gp or the or the asthma nurse so that if these patients are presenting with two or three exacerbations or more exacerbations that that can actually be followed up because if if we're popping out to someone every night but we're not actually letting primary care know then they're not going to have any awareness that this person's asthma is not being adequately controlled so that's that's some of the patients that we'd be concerned about discharging clearly between those lines patients that don't have those risk factors that are presenting with a fully resolved or, or mostly resolved uh, acute asthma attack and and didn't have any of those concerning life-threatening red flag features or, or that are completely resolved following our treatment or uh, resolved quickly they might be candidates for discharge Let's talk then about the management that we might have been giving to some of these patients. So Alex, probably where we're going to be starting with is salbutamol. Do you want to talk to us a bit about uh, salbutamol and, and some of the other meds that we use in managing these patients? I've ended up with the uh, the really electrically exciting parts today, haven't I? Pathophys and drugs. Salbutamol is really our first line treatment. I know that most people listening are going to be familiar with most of these medicines. And we have covered them in other episodes. So this is really just a quick recap of uh, of the common medicines used in the management of, of acute asthma. So salbutamol is our first line treatment. It's a short acting selective beta 2 adrenergic receptor agonist. It's 29 times more selective for beta 2 receptors, uh, giving it a higher specificity for pulmonary receptors rather than the beta 1 receptors in the cardiac muscle. The mechanism of action for salbutamol is, is actually a lot more complicated than it initially sounds, but essentially it activates an intracellular biochemical cascade which ultimately ends up inhibiting the actin myosin uh, within smooth muscle in all of those airways and as i said earlier you know particularly the bronchioles they are completely dependent on smooth muscle for um for airflow so salbutamol relaxes all of those um all of those smooth muscles in all of the airways from the trachea right down to the terminal bronchioles and it has a measurable decrease in bronchoconstriction within a sort of 5 to 15 minute period. Maximum improvement in pulmonary function is around 60 to 90 minutes after administration. And as uh, anyone who's read JR Calc will know, there's not really any limit in the emergency situation to how much uh, salbutamol can be given. But just be aware that it can cause some shakiness, some tachycardia because it is a selective receptor agonist, but it does have some cardiac effects as well. I, I think most people listening, aren't they, are going to be quite happy with how we administer salbutamol and, and will have given it many, many times before. And most of these patients are quite obvious as, as when they need it. And often your ECA has the nebulizer ready for you before you've even asked for it. It's probably just worth mentioning that in a lot of the texts, uh, and I think it's completely uh, reasonable to do so, is um, for for patients that are 
down towards the lower end of this of the severity spectrum, we should probably be getting them to administer their own inhalers in the first instance. And most patients will come back to you at, and as saying, oh, well, I've tried and it hasn't worked. That's why I've called you. And that might be completely fair enough. But it can be actually quite a useful teachable moment to try and get patients to uh, administer 10 actuations of their own salbutamol inhalers. We can monitor their technique uh, and we can use the opportunity to stress that they should be using a spacer. Use Using a spacer is head and shoulders of more effective than uh, just using an inhaler as I'm, as I'm sure most people are used to them using it uh, straight from the actuator but but uh, using a spacer is incredibly incredibly useful if we're able to get them to self-resolve uh, with their own medicine and with their own spacers then hopefully that's a teachable moment to them that they can do it the next time it happens and they don't have to wait the lengthy time for an ambulance they might be able to sort these things a lot a lot of the times themselves and then just finally another thing to consider is uh, whether the spacer is clean so spacers are supposed to be cleaned quite regularly to, to prevent the medication uh sort of bunging up the device uh, and the huge amounts of patients don't clean them regularly and, and they can be the most disgusting devices i've definitely seen um some spaces that i wouldn't want to be inhaling through so uh using the opportunity to get them a new one or, or remind them that they need to clean it to have maximum effectiveness of, of the device. Uh, I'll be back at five minutes, boys. I'm just going to go clean my spacer. <laughs> good, good. See, teachable moment. <laughs> so the next drug that people are going to be familiar with is ipotropium, which is our second line sort of or, or concurrent treatment Um as a, a short-acting muscarinic acetylcholine antagonist, what it does is it antagonizes those receptors and inhibits parasympathetic nervous activity in the airway and prevents bronchoconstriction. So I quite often hear people describe epitropium as a steroid. It's not a steroid. It is an antagonist. And if you think about salbutamol, forces the muscle to relax. Uh, I like to think of ipotropium as, as being a drug which prevents the muscles from tensing up again. So it sort of enhances the ability of uh, th those two drugs in combination kind of attack the uh, the problem in the smooth muscle from, from both directions. And the last thing really, we've already sort of touched on this um, very briefly in the last section, but the next thing which we really need to think about more often is is steroids. So steroids are synthetic analogues of hormones which are produced by the adrenal cortex on top of the kidneys, as I'm sure everyone uh, everyone listening is probably um, aware. And they can have glucocorticoid or mineral corticoid properties. And corticosteroids exert an anti-inflammatory effect through their influence on signal pathways and interruption of really very complex cellular and inflammatory gene processes which i'm not even going to pretend to understand but they interrupt those processes and reduce uh, reduce inflammation is is this is the simple uh, the simple explanation which i understand an effect that steroids also have is to suppress the immune system so they will sometimes be used in uh, in autoimmune conditions such as rheumatoid uh, arthritis and, and problems like that patients who are on medium or long-term steroid courses so those patients who are on 
inhaled corticosteroid inhalers, particularly for long periods of time, are at increased risk of localized or systemic infection, which is particularly relevant when we're thinking about infective exacerbation. So the rationale for administration of systemic corticosteroids in acute asthma is to reverse the inflammatory component, which we're really not reversing or preventing with short-acting bronchodilators. If you think about the action of the two drugs that I've just described, epitropium and salbutamol, they are working on the smooth muscle to uh, relax those airways and reduce some of that bronchoconstriction, but they're not tackling the, the inflammatory component, which takes place during that late phase of the of the reaction so that's that's really why it's so important that steroids are used because we'll have these patients who you can absolutely fill to the brim with short-acting bronchodilators and they're still going to have some wheeze they're still not going to be resolved it's because they've still got inflammation in the uh, in in their airway and um, what they need is a course of steroids to a reduce that inflammation but b also to prevent that ongoing damage from that cell infiltration. So that's the treatment for anywhere really from your mild exacerbation of asthma right up to up to more severe symptoms. But once we get into the realm of very severe life-threatening asthma or even cardiac arrest asthma, as well as all those things, there's also uh, some other medications and some other things which we might uh, which we might have to consider, Josh, isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the first ones that we probably need to talk about is uh, IM Adrenaline. Now, most guidelines when you look through severe asthma treatment aren't going to contain IM Adrenaline. JRCalc is a little bit of uh, an outlier in this respect in indicating intramuscular uh, adrenaline for severe asthma. And I was having a little look around trying to find other guidance that also advocates this. I, I even opened my Nancy Caroline book to see if it was in there and it isn't. So JR Calc is, is somewhat of an outlier in recommending this. Now it does make sense. Obviously we have endogenous adrenaline and uh, that's part of our fight or flight response, which we're going to be uh, creating a reasonable amount of this. But giving uh, exogenous adrenaline for its bronchodilator effect is going to be helpful. Adrenaline is obviously uh, an adrenoreceptor agonist and uh, it'll have a number of effects. It'll have some beneficial cardiovascular effects in this context, but probably the reason that J.R. Kulk is suggesting we give it is for its significant beta-2 agonism, which will cause bronchodilation. So there's, there's probably a number of reasons that JR Calc recommend this. Like with most things, they haven't really explained their reasoning. So I've assumed that part of the reason that they've suggested it is that they, uh, they don't want to risk people missing a diagnosis of anaphylaxis. And if we give it to an asthma exacerbation that doesn't have an anaphylactic component, it's probably going to be helpful and not going to be deeply harmful. But if we don't give it in an anaphylaxis case that we have mistaken for an asthma exacerbation, then, then that is going to be bad times. So it, it probably recommends it for a bit of a coverall with anaphylaxis, which isn't a bad idea. And especially if you're in a bit of a halfway house between whether or not this is somebody suffering from asthma or anaphylaxis, it makes sense to cover all bases. But as I've just described, the pharmacology of it does make sense. Well, from my perspective, it, it was probably just worth stressing to people that uh, this isn't standard severe asthma 
management guidance. And so when you walk into the recess room, having told the recess team that you've given IM adrenaline for your suspected life-threatening asthma, you might get a few funny looks. Is that fair to say, Simon? Do you, have, you, have you either shared, have you shared that experience or had that experience yourself? Yeah, actually, in the last couple of weeks, I've had it in my department because uh, one of our consultants was like, Simon, can I have a quick word? I was like, yeah. The paramedics gave IM adrenaline for a life-threatening asthma. I was like, yeah. They were like, what, what, why did they do that? And I was like, because there's something in the ambulance service guidelines. And we had an entire conversation about it. And I spent a little bit of time trying to research it myself after that. And yeah, no, I agree with you. I couldn't find any other evidence either apart from jail calc. So, um, but completely agree with the reasons you just said. But yeah, no, it, it does come up. So um, yeah, don't don't be surprised if you get strange looks, but just um, just uh, show them jail calc or just uh, kind of uh, make it clear. Most people, it's just because they just don't understand. Yeah, exactly. And and if you don't understand yourself, then that makes for an awkward conversation. There's there's some studies from the 80s which uh, were looking at it, and I don't think it was particularly efficacious, but we'll also link up to an article that was in the Journal of Paramedic Practice that uh, looks at a bit of the history around IM adrenaline in this case and, and, and talks through in a bit more detail th- those justifications that uh, that I was just describing. But yeah, stick stick by your guns. Uh, it absolutely does make sense to give it, and it is quite useful as a, uh, a as a catch all, so you don't miss anaphylaxis. So you're going to be giving it intramuscularly. Absolutely, don't give it intravenously in this instance, as most people will be aware of. You're going to be giving it intramuscularly, and for adults, it's going to be 500 micrograms or 0.5 mils. There isn't a maximum dose in JR Calc, but I think it's probably worth considering the side effects of of giving the drug in this instance, particularly around tachycardia, given that we might be giving this patient quite a lot of salbutamol, a side effect of which is tachycardia. And if we push that heart rate up too much, there's an increased risk of arrhythmias and, and potentially myocardial ischemia if we've got long transport times. So absolutely give it it's in the guidance but you know if it doesn't look to be particularly helpful or you don't or you're comfortable that there isn't an anaphylactoid component then maybe give consideration to how much of it you want to be giving based on the risk benefits of the side effects that you're also getting i suppose the other reason um might also be because we don't have any other parental beta agonist or bronchodilators in the in the ambulance formulary unlike kind of myself and ed and, and yourself in critical care josh so that might be another reason that the IM adrenaline is, is given for that life-threatening asthma as a, as a kind of adjunct, which kind of brings us nicely onto IV magnesium. Yeah, and particularly topical as this has made itself into JR Calc in recent weeks, I believe, in a, in a recent update. I'm not quite certain how ambulance services are going to be using this, if it's just in there for critical care and enhanced care components or, or whether we'll see a movement to uh, to carrying magnesium in most paramedic drugs bags. But I thought it was worth talking about, given that it's something that uh, might be in the crew room conversation. So magnesium is an electrolyte that's found naturally in our food and, and in, in our bodies. It takes part in a number of body processes so it's involved in oxidative phosphorylation in glycolysis in atp metabolism it's got functions in in nerve function blood glucose control and hormone receptor bindings but particularly what we're looking at here is magnesium's function uh, with regards to muscle contraction and smooth muscle control so 
You'll find in most asthma guidelines that uh, if patients have been unresponsive to the nebulizers we've discussed and steroids, you can move on to giving them some intravenous magnesium. And the theory behind the mechanism of action, it's got one of those lovely get out of jail freeze in that it's not fully understood. But there's, there's a couple of theories. So it might be that magnesium has an effect in smooth muscle relaxation. So it has an ability to prevent calcium channels moving calcium ions into smooth muscle cells. So by giving a large dose of magnesium, you, you create smooth muscle relaxation. And we've already talked about the importance of relaxing the smooth muscle to create a larger lumen in those airways and help with, uh, with gas movement. It's also thought that there might be some effect in reducing the inflammation response by reducing something called neutrophilic burst, which comes back to some of the points that Alex was talking about in the pathophysiology section. But uh, it's not exactly clear how magnesium seems to seems to work but it is in lots of the guidelines so the the bts guidance for patients with acute severe asthma or life-threatening asthma that haven't had a, a good initial response to inhaled bronchodilator therapy would be between 1.2 and 2 grams over 20 minutes intravenously now we've we've discussed this haven't we in our little whatsapp group simon about the effectiveness of intravenous magnesium and and i'm not an in-hospitalist and in-hospitalists seem to love this stuff i i suggested in our group chat that uh, magnesium might not be the most efficacious thing in asthma and you all looked at me like i'd farted in an elevator so uh, <laughs> <laughs> what what what's your thoughts about its effectiveness and then I'll come on to talk about the the evidence. Yeah, well, I suppose I'm accepting of the evidence. The evidence isn't like conclusive. I quite like that the Cochrane review kind of gave me enough evidence to bring it into my practice. I do give it quite a lot. Anecdotally, I do see improvement in my patients. But at, the thing is, is that at the same time that I am giving IV magnesium, I'm giving them back-to-back salbutamol nebulizers and other treatment and the steroids have probably been in there for a little while and I'm yeah and 20 or fluids. 20 to 30 minutes for all of that stuff to work yeah so you know so anecdotally i i could just be observing the effects of other things or just have an opinion and be biased towards the fact that i think it works and therefore my patient looks better yeah um i, I mean but i do I, I do give it quite frequently to my severe and life-threatening asthmatics anyone i'm admitting into hospital i tend to give them a couple of grams of magnesium I, I like it and that Cochrane review is what I base my clinical decision making on yeah um, fair and enough. you're going to destroy that now aren't you no 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 <laughs> no not at all that that reflects quite accurately um, my experience speaking to to in hospital people you know most ED physicians that I know and work with love it I've even heard stories about patients asking for IV magnesium because they're that convinced that is the thing that makes them better so you know anecdotal experience is is useful it is somewhere on the tier of evidence isn't it it's just not very high up it but i respect the fact that most people who have anecdotal experience using iv magnesium in these asthma patients seem to like it and seem to think it works but that could be biased for all the reasons that you've just said i haven't given it in these contexts so uh, i don't have a particular dog in that fight but looking at the evidence so there was a there was a, a trial called the 3MG trial a few years ago, and that was the biggest study at the time that uh, was a randomized control trial looking at intravenous magnesium. And it essentially concluded that it found no particular benefit. So the bottom line was that there was no notable 
benefits in in giving IV magnesium in these patients for any of the endpoints that they looked at. Now there were all a lot of the usual flaws that you can find in studies, and and it was underpowered for what it was looking at. But but essentially, they found that there were no particular benefits. There was a, a meta analysis a few years later that included the results of the three MG trial and a number of other trials. So there was loads of heterogeneity, and their conclusion was the only benefit they found was duration of hospital stay. So they found a benefit that patients that received IV magnesium uh, had a shorter hospital stay. So they had an odds ratio of of 0.75. So essentially for every 100 patients they gave IV magnesium to, seven of those patients would have had a reduced hospital stay. And I don't know how long that hospital stay was. It could have been three hours, it could have been three days. But they they found no mortality benefits or, or any other benefits at the endpoints that they looked at. So I guess the point, I'm not trying to, like I say, I haven't got a dog in the fight. I don't feel particularly strongly about it. And and uh, I'll hold my hands up that I haven't used IV magnesium in this patient group. But I, I just wanted to put all of that out there because you can have a tendency to seeing this new drug coming in and potentially you might be getting this drug in your drugs bags in the future. Uh, and we have a habit of thinking our oh, new stuff must be better. But I think we just need to uh, bear in mind where this sits in the usefulness tree for these patients. And it's definitely not the first line. So doing those things that we know has benefit to patients, giving them these nebulizers, giving them the IM adrenaline if it's needed and if it's indicated and giving them oxygen and making sure that we try to oxygenate these patients as well as giving steroids. Uh, so whether or not they're going to be having it orally or uh, having intravenous hydrocortisone from you. These are the things that have really good evidence for them. IV magnesium is, is less so. Some of the other things that we can just uh, very briefly talk about when thinking about patients that are this poorly. So patients that are requiring ventilation from us, probably going to be those patients that are very peri-arrest or in cardiac arrest. If we can, if we have the ability to intubate them, in, in the context of cardiac arrest, that's going to be very useful because what we may find is that we can't get a good enough seal with an eye gel and the pressures that we generate in the chest, we may not be able to overcome with the BVM. So you can end up with a, a reasonable amount of leakage from an eye gel and insufflation of the stomach, which can cause gastric reflux and and, uh, and vomiting and give you all sorts of problems with your airway. So if, if you've got one of these patients that you think are going to go into cardiac arrest or in cardiac arrest, if you can get somebody who can intubate them there uh, as early as possible, that can be quite useful in those uh, early stages of cardiac arrest. And we should also probably think about breath stacking in our ventilatory strategy. So remember, this is an obstructive problem. So in the same context of COPD, we have a problem getting air out of the lungs, not necessarily just getting the air in. And so when we're bagging these patients, they tend to have a habit of what's called breath stacking. So we pump the chest up more and more and more, and it's an already hyperinflated chest. So you can end up with a massively inflated chest that we can't shift any air movement through. If we were connecting these patients up to a ventilator, we would create a longer expiratory time to allow this chest to recoil back on itself which isn't necessarily possible with BVM. So you just want to be really conscious about avoiding hyperinflation and remembering that we need to give this chest time to empty. In cardiac arrest, we might need to consider something called manual decompression of the chest. So is this something either of you guys have done? Um, I've heard of, but not done. Yeah, done it in an OSCE. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, not in real life, no, but, um, but yeah, aware of it. 
So if you're, if you're finding that you're really struggling to shift air and you've got a massively hyperinflated chest, what might be worth doing is some manual deflation of the chest. So you just disconnect your bag, leave the HME filter on, particularly in these COVID times, leave the HME filter on top, but just disconnect the rest of the airway circuit and get somebody to literally put their body weight big wide hand span across the chest put their body weight slowly onto the chest to slowly deflate it uh, and then you can reconnect your ventilator circuit and you might have a better chance shifting air if that still hasn't worked then you probably want to give consideration as to whether or not there might be an underlying pneumothorax that needs decompression in that case because as i say these patients have massively hyperinflated inflated chests as soon as we start ventilating them positively pressure ventilating them there's a risk that we can we can blow a lung and uh, and give them a pneumothorax so there there's some of the more severe end of the spectrum things that we might end up doing and might end up needing to think about but hopefully not let's talk about what happens to the majority of these patients in hospital so perhaps not these patients that are, are in cardiac arrest and at that very severe end of the spectrum simon but what what will typically happen to these patients in a and e and uh, if they need to be admitted so obviously we've covered the kind of lower end of the spectrum of discharging with steroids and advice and things. We talked about that earlier. As you said, the higher end of the spectrum, we would continue giving back-to-back salbutamol nebulizers and we would give ipratropia of every four to six hours as a nebula as well. We would give magnesium, which is uh, um, obviously, as we, we said, is um, in the BTS guidelines. We'd obviously give steroids if they weren't given pre-hospitally, but I'm, I'm hoping that most of the time nowadays they're given pre-hospitally. I would consider doing a chest x-ray if the patient had uh, an infected or, or likely infective exacerbation or a potential for an underlying pneumothorax. If I, if I think there's other conditions going on, then I might want to look at chest x-ray for, but it's not something we'd necessarily do as standard. We want to do an, an ABG, um, ideally uh, with some local anesthetic in the wrist because um, it's actually been shown in qualitative studies that a lot of asthmatic patients delay coming back to hospital with exas- asthma exacerbations because of how painful ABGs are and it distresses them so much that they, they don't come back. So um, I do sometimes put a little bit of 1% lignocaine into a small kind of insulin syringe just to put a little bleb under the skin. And the reason we do that is because we want to monitor our carbon dioxide retention. So what we want to see uh, in an asthmatic patient is a slightly reduced carbon dioxide level because that shows that they are kind of ventilating they have or they have they're ventilating well enough that they can get oxygen and carbon dioxide out we become concerned if they're actually normocapnic that's actually a kind of worrying sign that they're deteriorating because it means they're not ventilating as well and then hypercapnia is is definitely a, a red flag for near fatal asthma and usually mandates an itu admission so hypercapnia would would be really concerning to us probably give some iv fluids at some point not necessarily like smashing them in as resuscitation fluids but obviously if you're breathing really quick and for a long time uh, rapidly going to get a relative dehydration we would consider IV aminophilin if the patient doesn't already take their own theophylline medication for their uh, for their asthma management. Again, it's kind of like a, a later drug to, to, to give further down the line, but it's something we would consider. It's another bronco or has bronchodilator effectiveness. Also reduces airway responsiveness to histamine. And then obviously, finally, if the patient continues to deteriorate, we could either consider non-invasive ventilation or intubation. However, non-invasive ventilation in asthma doesn't have a fantastic 
proof of worth yet um, for stopping an intubation. It might bridge us a gap, but a lot of the time there's no kind of proven benefit that it stops people being intubated at the moment. And then finally, obviously, if the patient continues to deteriorate, we come to the point where they might have to be admitted to intensive care and undergo an intubation. And intubation itself in asthma is really, really risky. So, you know, there's a high chance of of, of, res- of respiratory and cardiac arrest. So we really need considerable expertise to be doing that. It's, it's not something that would be done lightly. I think people try and refrain from intubating asthmatics for as long as possible. And when they do do it, we normally, uh, Josh, you'd probably be able to support this as well. We probably um, in, induce with ketamine because it has known bronchodilator properties and can actually benefit the treatment and it's kind of relatively cardiovascularly stable they tend to dump their blood pressure as well as soon yeah. as you uh anesthetize them because there's so much pressure in their chest affecting uh their, their cardiovascular system um so yeah probably gets yeah. me it's um it's not uh it's not uh something i think that many people do lightly it's not something we particularly want to do right well done if you've made it this far let's summarize shall we We've discussed how asthma is a complex biomolecular pathology with varying different phenotypes. Exacerbations of asthma can sit on a wide spectrum from the fairly easily managed to the life-threatening. When assessing our patients, we may need to do a bit of a disjointed assessment with some varying concurrent activity so we can get some treatment and medication into our patients as we're assessing them. We should endeavor to perform a peak flow on our patients where it's clinically appropriate. Don't just ignore it, as it's an important aspect of assessing the patient's severity. However, it may not always be appropriate to attempt this on those at the more severe or life-threatening end of the spectrum. When considering discharge, we need to risk stratify our patients. Just because symptoms have mostly resolved doesn't necessarily mean that they're safe for discharge, as they may represent later on in the day. We know patients with previous intensive care stays, regular admissions, poor compliance with preventative medications and a recent increase in reliance on their salbutamol inhalers are all risk factors for mortality. So we need to ensure that we elucidate each of these points when we're taking our history. All patients we've seen for an asthma exacerbation should be referred for a short course of steroids, either through to take away PGD in our trusts or through referral to a prescriber. If patients are unwell and going to hospital with us, then we can give them a 100mg dose of hydrocortisone IM or IV. Just don't forget to push this slowly if you're using the intravenous route, otherwise you can cause the patient to experience a burning sensation from the phosphates in the hydrocortisone preservatives. Salbutamol and ipotropium nebulizers are the obvious treatments, and salbutamol can be given back to back if needed, but just don't forget to consider the side effects when giving these patients in high doses. Don't forget about IM adrenaline in life-threatening situations, but again, be aware this isn't in all guidelines, so you may be questioned on this at hospital. And finally, in cardiac arrest situations, among many other things we've discussed, it can be useful to intubate the patient. If this isn't in your scope of practice, then put an early call in for enhanced or critical care support. But that's all for this month. Thanks again for listening. As usual, you can find our references and additional learning material on our website, generalbroadcast.org.uk, as well as our previous back catalogue of past episodes. But that's it for this month. Take care, and we'll see you next month.